We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 2 in just three verses. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. Before we read that together, let's pray together. Our Father, we do come to worship Christ, our risen King, and I pray that as we look at your word, that you would show us Christ, our risen King, in all of his glory, that you would help us to see him more fully, uh, to delight in him more fully, to worship him more fully this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, Acts chapter 2. Just three verses, verses 22 through 24. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. I want you to think about the possibilities this morning. In this, we are limited uh, really only by the strength of our own imagination. Uh, we, we don't often think of imagination as an important part of faith, but it is. Not because we need to imagine what isn't real, but because we need to imagine what is. Not because we need to pretend, but because we need to believe. The imagination is the ability to bring something to mind that is not immediately present to our senses. We need our imaginations engaged when we read Scripture. Uh, imagine what it was like when the sun stood still, when Israel battled the five kings of the Amorites, headed by Joshua, who prayed that the sun would stand still, and it did. Can you imagine that, what that would have been like for the Israelites battling on that day? Imagine what it was like when Abraham was told to look up at the stars of heaven and God promised, so shall your offspring be. Just imagine it. Imagine what it was like when God said, let there be light. And for the first time, there was light. But we need our imaginations turned on for more than that. Uh, we need to not only imagine what God has done, we need to imagine what he might do. Uh, too often we are quick to say, well, that's not possible. We often say it about some relative or friend coming to faith. We say things like, oh, there's no way that, that he or she will ever become a Christian. No way that will happen. I can't imagine it. Or we say it of a struggling church, ever growing again and becoming a light to its city. We, we just sit and wait and expect it to die. We can't imagine anything else. Or we say it of some broken relationship in life. I can't imagine it ever getting better. I can't imagine ever being friends with that person again. I can't imagine change. Uh, many of us uh, know the, the New International Version of Ephesians 3.20, 
which says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. Now, I don't, I don't know about you, but when I read that verse, I want to strengthen my imagination because the verse tells me that no matter what I can do, imagine, God can do more. But even as we think about the possibilities this morning, we're going to focus on something that was not possible, something that was impossible that, that opens up the Christian life to the possibilities. Uh, this morning, I want to talk about an, an impossibility that makes the impossible possible, an impossibility that makes the impossible possible. Uh, and to that end, we're going to talk about three things. We'll, we'll talk about what is We'll talk about what is impossible, and then we'll talk about what is possible, or, or the real, the impossible, and the possible. First, the real. Uh, what, what is your life like? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it enjoyable? Is it difficult? Is, are you just ha- happy to be here, or are you wishing you stayed in bed? Uh, do you struggle financially or emotionally or relationally or spiritually? Do you struggle with guilt or temptation? Or shame. Now, I don't know about you, but when I, when I think about real life, life as it is, life as we experience it, it is hard. It is challenging. It is wearying. Life under the sun is, uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, vain, a vapor, meaningless, passing away. It is depressing sometimes. It is angering at others. Now, life can be happy and silly and and joyful, but when the happy moments end, there is an underlying sadness because this world is broken. Now, we're going to be talking about the resurrection this morning, which is the best and happiest news possible, but before we get to the good news, we've got to go through the bad news. We're looking this morning at at, at the story of Jesus, and in Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, and the heart of his sermon are just three verses, the three verses we read earlier, verses 22 to 24. And we could easily spend a sermon on each verse, uh, but this morning, we're not going to do that, Uh, we're going to spend the most time actually on one phrase in these verses, uh, a phrase at the end of verse 24, it was not possible for him to be held by it. But to get there, we've got to understand what leads up to that phrase. And so Acts 2 uh, tells us the story of the day of Pentecost. Uh, Pentecost was a Jewish festival, the Feast of Weeks. Uh, it happened 50 days after the Feast of first fruits, hence the name Pentecost for 50. Uh, the Feast of Weeks uh, was a, a feast of thanksgiving uh, for God's abundant provision through the harvest. And this particular Pentecost, Jesus had risen from the dead uh, some weeks earlier and was now pouring out his spirit on the church. The Spirit uh, on that day uh, enabled God's people to speak the good news of Jesus in many languages so that everyone in Jerusalem for the festival, no matter what their native tongue, could hear the good news in their own language. And the people kind of marveled at this. They were a little bit confused. They were wondering what was going on. And so Peter gets up to explain. And we're not, we're not going to look at everything that Peter says, but just at uh, the heart of it in these three verses. I'm going to go ahead and read them again, verses 22 through 24. Peter stands up and he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, 
This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now, the first thing Peter says uh, about Jesus is that he was a man attested to you by God, meaning God had, had demonstrated to the people his approval of Jesus. How did he do that? Well, it, Peter tells us through mighty works and wonders and signs. Jesus had performed various miracles during his earthly life, and at the time, the common people interpreted that as God's presence with Jesus. Even one of the religious leaders of the day, who were generally opposed to Jesus as an outsider, uh, said in John chapter 3, verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, uh, you, you may be skeptical about these claims. I mean, how do we know that Jesus performed miracles? Uh, but I, I want you to think about Peter's argument he says to his audience, as you yourselves know, meaning they had seen these things. Everybody in Jerusalem and Israel at the time had seen or at least knew someone who had seen this wonder worker, Jesus. And even when you turn to extra biblical Jewish sources, uh, you find that confirmed. Uh, the Jewish Talmud uh, does not deny Jesus' miracles, but it says that Jesus was put to death for sorcery. Uh, so it acknowledges that uh, Jesus signs uh, and wonders. It, it acknowledges that he performed signs and wonders, but it attributes them to sorcery rather than to God. So no one in that day denied that Jesus performed miracles. Everyone had seen them. There were eyewitnesses abounding. Even his enemies didn't deny that. They just said, it was from some bad place. And so uh, the, the response of the religious leaders of Jesus' day, Matthew 9, uh, 35, the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. Jesus' opposition did not deny his miracles. They attributed them to demons and sorcery. And so Jesus was a, a wonder worker, right? Some, some said it was by the hands of demons, others by the hand of God. But no one denied that he performed miracles, uh, verse 23 then says, Jesus was delivered up. Now, this is one of those great verses that contains volumes of theology in a few words. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Uh, here we have the, the mystery of God's sovereignty, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, and human responsibility. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God was at work according to his plan and purpose. God delivered Jesus up to death. As John 3.16 says, God, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. This was God's plan and God's purpose to give his son for our sins. But Peter accuses the religious leaders of his day of crucifying and killing Jesus by the hands of lawless men. And the lawless men are, are the Gentiles, the Gentile rulers of that day. It doesn't mean necessarily that they are, were wicked, but that they were without the Mosaic law. They did not have the law of God. And, and here's uh, Peter's point. Jesus of Nazareth 
was falsely put to death. The religious leaders hated him because of his popularity, uh, because he upset the status quo, uh, because he might mess with the delicate balance between the Jews and the Roman authorities. And so they got some people to falsely accuse him, to falsely try him, to falsely convict him, which is exactly what happened. And this, this is uh, the, the real, as it were, right? This, this is life as we know it. Not that your life and mine are, are this bad, but betrayal, lies, jealousy, collusion, misunderstanding, misrepresentation, being sinned against and suffering. We, we know what these things are like, maybe on a small scale, maybe on a large scale, but we know what they're like, don't we? Where do you see this in your own life? Where do you experience hard things? Are you sinned against? Jesus understands. He went there. He experienced that. Are you suffering? Jesus gets it. Whatever your trial, whatever your hardship, Jesus has been through it. Betrayed, denied, accused, stripped, beaten, mocked, convicted, crucified. But there is hope, uh, even in verse 23, right? It, it was God's plan that Jesus should taste death. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God was at work in the midst of those hard things. Uh, nobody could see it at the time, right? N nobody could see it. His disciples scattered, denied him, and gave up. But God was at work in that. He was at work to bring good out of evil, life out of death, which moves us from the real to the impossible. What is your experience of death? Maybe you've had loved ones pass on. Maybe you've had a close call yourself, a car accident or a violent crime or a deadly disease. The older we get, the more real death becomes, right? At some point, we all must face it. At the end of the first season of one of my favorite TV shows, uh, two characters, both scientists, are stuck at the bottom of the ocean in a box. And they're basically there waiting to run out of air. And they begin to imagine what death will be like. And they see it as something romantic. Uh, one character says his mom always told him, you shouldn't be afraid because it's just like the way life was before you were born. Uh, which is really a very unscientific thing to say, because how do you know that it's going to be just like it was before you were born? Uh, but the other responds, I, I like to think about the first law of thermodynamics, uh, that no energy in the universe is created and none is destroyed. That means that every bit of energy inside us, every particle will go on to be a part of something else, maybe live on as a dragonfish or a microbe or maybe uh, uh, burn in a supernova 10 billion years from now. And every part of us now was once a part of some other thing, a moon, a storm cloud, a mammoth, a monkey, thousands and thousands of other beautiful things that were just as terrified to die as we are. We gave them new life. It's romantic, but a bit naive. It sees death as a natural part of life and ignores that there may be things that science can't measure like the human soul. But death is not natural. Death is what brings to the world an undercurrent of sadness. When, you are, uh, when we are young and naive, it, we think we will live forever. We, we, may, we may be able to ignore death. But the older we get, the more real it becomes. 
But death, however real it may be, is not natural. God did not create humanity for death. He created us to live, to enjoy life, to flourish. Death is not natural. Death is, in the end, a judicial punishment on sin. Jesus was crucified and killed. He died and was buried. Millions of people had died before him. Millions of people have died since. What makes his story any different? Well, verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. I want you to think about this phrase at the end of that verse. It was not possible for him to be held by it. Why could death not keep its hold on Jesus? What makes Jesus' story so different? If death is natural, then Jesus' death was natural. If death is a natural part of life, then Jesus' death was a natural part of life. But death is not natural. When we read the first few chapters of Genesis, we see that death came through sin. Death is is the punishment for sin. All have sinned, therefore all die. Now, that, that doesn't mean that any particular death is a direct result of some particular sin of that person. That's not what that means. But it means the reality of death in the world is a result of the reality of sin in the world. And we participate in that because we, too, are sinners. And so why could death not keep its hold on Jesus? Well, Peter tells us elsewhere in his first letter, 1 Peter 2.22, he says of Jesus that he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And here is why death could not keep its hold on him. Death is a judicial punishment for sin, but Jesus had no sin. Psalm 18, one of the 150 messianic psalms, puts it like this. Hear these words as the words of the Messiah Jesus in Psalm 18, verses 16 through 24. He says, he sent from on high, that is God, sent from on high. He took me and drew me out of many waters, a symbol for death. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me. Why? Because he delighted in me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from my guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight." Who could say those words and mean them to their fullest except for Jesus? Why did the Father raise Jesus from the dead? Because he was blameless. The resurrection was the reward for Jesus' righteousness. Death had no claim on him. It had no right to hold him in the grave. Which means the resurrection is Jesus' vindication. When Jesus was dying on the cross, people mocked. Uh, Matthew 27 says, uh, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. 
So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Does God desire Jesus? Does the father delight in his son? Is the father well pleased with his son? How can we know? Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.16 that Jesus was vindicated by the spirit. And in Romans 1, he explains that as saying, when he says that while Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh, he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. See, the resurrection was the vindication of Jesus. In the resurrection, the Father declared Jesus to be his beloved Son. He gave proof to all that Jesus was who he said he was, that death had no right over him, that he is the beloved Son, the righteous one, the holy one. Now, if that is true, if death had no right over Jesus, that brings up another question. Then why did Jesus die in the first place? If death had no claim on him, why did he die? And that is one of the most important questions in the world. Peter, again, gives us the answer in his first letter. Just a few verses later, in 1 Peter 2, 24, Peter says of Jesus, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. The only way Jesus could die is if he was standing in the place of sinners. If he died not for his sin, but for our sin. Death had no claim on him, no right to him, but he died for the sin of the world. He bore our sins. He took our penalty. He accepted God's curse for our rebellion. He received God's judgment for our crime. But once that judgment was dealt... Once Jesus received the full wrath of God for sin, once God's judgment was poured out and emptied on the Son on the cross, after that, death had no more claim. The cup was empty. The judgment met. The penalty paid. The law's demand had been satisfied. It was not possible for him to be held by it any longer. It's not that it was not practical, It's not that it was not desirable. It's not that it was not necessary. It's that it was not possible because death had no claim on him. It's this impossibility that makes the impossible possible in the Christian life, which brings us to our final point, the possible. When you are in the midst of hardships or trials or troubles, how do you feel? What thoughts go through your head? Uh, What emotions go through your heart? Uh, There's sadness about the thing itself, but what else? Uh, Frustration, depression, hopelessness. Uh, Do you think this is never going to end? Nothing's ever going to get better. Real change isn't possible. I might as well just give up. Or maybe there's guilt because you think it's all my fault and God is angry with me and that's why this bad thing is happening. Oftentimes when we are in the middle of trials, we can't see past the trial. We suddenly become nearsighted. The the pain, the sadness, the hardship, 
it seems to become our whole world. There is nothing else, no possibilities, only pain. Well, Jesus felt that pain. Uh, he, he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the impossible made the impossible possible first for Jesus. What happened because it was not possible for Jesus to be held by death? Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. A resurrection, I don't know if you know this, but resurrection is, humanly speaking, impossible. People don't just get up out of the grave. But the impossible made the impossible possible. Because Jesus could not be held by death, God raised him from the dead. Now, the text says God loosed the pangs of death. The pangs are, are sharp, sudden pains. It's often translated as birth pains in the scriptures. If Peter uh, wants us to connect that with what comes next, that death could not keep its hold on Jesus, then the imagery is like this. The pain of death could no more keep Jesus in the grave than the pains of birth can keep the child in the womb. The pain of Jesus suffering for our sins both exhaust the wrath of the Father and are the height of Jesus' righteousness as he obeyed the Father even to the point of death. Right? In that obedience unto death, that, that actually seals his righteousness. The pain he suffered wins the reward of life everlasting. The impossibility, impossibility of death keeping its grip on Jesus has made the impossible resurrection possible. And this is where our imagination comes in. And can you imagine, can you imagine what the resurrection power of Jesus will mean when it comes into contact with your life? Can you fathom the possibilities? Jesus' resurrection power spills over into our lives in at least three ways according to the scripture, although there are certainly more. First, remember Jesus' resurrection was his vindication. It was the Father's declaration that, that Jesus was his righteous son. That, that word in 1 Timothy for vindication is the same word elsewhere used in the Bible for justification. Jesus was justified or declared righteous by his resurrection from the dead. Which is why Paul says in Romans 4.25 that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. We can be justified because Jesus was justified. We can be declared righteous because Jesus was declared righteous in his resurrection. And you and I are not righteous. We're maybe not as bad as we could be, but that doesn't make us righteous before our God. But here's the good news of the gospel, that Jesus was vindicated in his resurrection so that we in him can be vindicated before the throne of grace. When you believe in Jesus, you are joined to him. His righteousness becomes your righteousness. His vindication becomes your vindication. His justification becomes your justification. The impossibility of Jesus staying dead has made the impossible possible. And when you believe in Jesus, the impossible happens. The sinner is declared sinless. The unrighteous is declared righteous in God's sight. Maybe you are mired in guilt and shame. Maybe you think it's not possible to be free from that guilt. When Jesus came to bear your sin, to free you from guilt and shame, that you would be clean before the Father. Believe the impossible. Your sins can be taken away by the blood of Jesus. 
So the resurrection power spills over into our lives in terms of our status before God, and the resurrection power of Jesus also spills over into our lives in terms of our condition. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul prays in verses 17 through 20 that the church would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. He says that 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 power is the same power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Paul goes on in Ephesians 2 to describe this power. In a a well-known section of Ephesians like this, he he begins by saying that we were dead in sins, Ephesians 2.1, but God made us alive with Christ and raised us up with Christ in verses 5 and 6. As Christ was dead in the grave, but death could not keep its hold on him, so those who are united to Christ were dead in sin, but have been given new life in him. What is the end or the goal of this new life? Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God is giving us life, making us new that we might walk in newness of life. That we might, as Paul will go on to say in Ephesians 4, no longer walk as the Gentiles do, but be renewed in the spirit of our minds and put on the new self. Now, maybe you have been stuck in some sin or some temptation or some, some besetting sin that continues to damage your relationships and bring sorrow and regret. Are you stuck there? Is there any hope? Is real change possible? And the answer is yes. Yes, it is. The impossibility of Jesus staying dead has made the impossible possible. And that same power that was at work in Jesus' resurrection is now at work in those who believe in him. Believe in Jesus and begin to hope and trust in God's power made perfect in our weakness. Begin to strive and hope to walk in newness of life. Now, hope doesn't mean that there will be no struggle, but it means we can have confidence in Christ's victory in the midst of our struggle. And so the resurrection power of Jesus spills over into our lives in terms of our status before God. We are justified before him. The resurrection power of Jesus spills over into our lives in terms of our condition. We have been given new life by faith in him. And the resurrection power of Jesus spills over into our lives in terms of our future. Romans 8, 11. Paul says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you... He who raises Christ Jesus from the dead, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. See, we have hope that this is not the end. Whatever happens in this life, no matter how bad it may get, no matter what your situation, no matter what your circumstances, this is not the end of the story. God raised Jesus from the dead. Resurrection is the end of the story. As God's people, we have hope that God is going to put all things right and that even if I die, I will live forever because the resurrection is coming. We will rise and dwell with Christ forever on the last day. That is our hope. God is at work bringing resurrection into the lives of his children. God is is on the move in our hardship. He has a plan. Resurrection is breaking through, but however bleak things may look in the moment... We have hope that all things will be made new and we will rise on the last day. Christ has risen. The impossible has been made possible because it was not possible for death to keep its hold on him. Let's pray. Our Father, we marvel 
at the work of Jesus, who, who could not stay in the grave because death had no right to keep him there. And Father, we pray that you would help us to rejoice in this. Help us to understand it a little. Help us to grasp it a little. Help us to, to marvel at the holiness of Jesus, so holy that death itself had no say over him. Help us to marvel and help us to rejoice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.